Prerequisites, a podcast featuring conversations with scholars working in the Michigan State University Department of English. I am your host, Dr. Zach Cruzy. This episode is a little bit different. I am joined by folks from all around the country, including Professor Kimberly Blazer from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She is also the former Wisconsin Poet Laureate. Professor Leanne Howe from the University of Georgia, Professor Margaret Newton, who is also at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and my colleague here at Michigan State, Professor Gordon Henry. Each of these distinguished scholars and poets are contributors as associate editors and poets in a recent anthology of Native American poetry entitled, When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. The collection was released from Norton and shepherded by U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo, who is also the first Indigenous person to hold that title. This is a wonderful conversation that includes several readings as well as discussion about the poems included in this collection and how the book came to be. We also touch on some of the significant themes in the book, such as the important relationship between language and land, the importance of translation and being able to think in one's language, as well as sharing the beauty that language can offer. We also had an opportunity to discuss the shape of this collection, its structure, and how even the making of an art object contributes to its meaning and reception. With every episode of this series, my hope is that listeners will gain something new, either by way of perspective or general awareness of the work my colleagues are doing or something along those lines. And with an episode like this one, I hope that it's a launching point, not just for picking up this particular collection of Native American poetry, but for exploring the work of more indigenous poets. There is so much beauty and value and pleasure to be gained just by sort of breathing this a collection like this in and, and just being a part of it. It's, um, it's something that I, I hope that each of you will take some time to experience. Again, the title of the book is When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and I'll see you on the other side. I guess the first thing I wanted to ask about and I, that I think is important for folks to hear is how does how does a, a collection like this come about? Sort of what's the history of it and where does it fit into a larger conversation? Obviously, this is not the first anthology of Native poetry. I would really like for folks to sort of understand and experience sort of where uh, this comes from and, and some of the and even some of the challenges of assemblage. So, Leanne, since you were associate editor on the project, would you sort of walk us through like what? What's the sort of the initial sort of impetus for for the for the collection? You know, the, we began three years ago. I think the first meeting that Joy and I had was it was in Atlanta, actually. And we got together and talked about this project. And Norton had proposed an anthology. And so we talked about what that would mean, how we would put put it together um, and the collaborative nature of the work. Remember, this is a project, and, and this is so important. It is not uh, a top-down project where an editor makes a lot of decisions. What we did was to have regions of the country um, 
and regional editors from Ojibwe and the northern reaches, the, the northeast editors from that, native editors from that region, from the southwest and far west into the Pacific. So those, that was the first project is to pull in poets and writers from regions around the country. And that's really the beginning. And I wanted to say something about the project <clears throat> as it was ongoing, as we got a lot of material. Um, when we were putting this together, I think this is the, uh, and Kim talks about this so well, is that we read every, everything that we received out loud to each other. So that was the process. The words had to be spoken, not just living on the page from each region. And that made a world of difference. So the book feels like a whole human being at, to, to the best of our ability. Yeah, I think, I think that really comes across, right? There is, it, it does, it feels alive. And, and I want to, I want to talk about that a little bit and sort of the, the shapes and the shape of the, the shape of the collection as well. But I think one of the things that, that's so striking about it is the sort of the historical breadth of contributions that are in here, right? Uh, one of the things that in our earlier conversations, Kim had noted that there's over 300 years of poetry included in this collection. So Kim, you know, walk us through that, you know, like those moments in history and what, why it's so critical for us to sort of see this in this broad scope, right? In this wide angle lens of historical perspective. Sure. So there are 161 poets, 90 nations, and five regions. So that's huge, right? And we also have to think about, you know, some of the poems um, were originally oral. Mm -hmm. They've been um, put into writing, been translated from indigenous languages. So that's like some of the early work all the way through um, really recent work by writers who had their first book last year, right? So it's a huge swath of time um, across many tribal nations. And so I, I say that it, it's, it's not only um, helps us expand beyond stereotypes, right, to understand what Native poetry looks like, sounds like, or does in the world, but also who's allowed into the canons of the literary elite. And I think that's a really important aspect of what this book does, that it confirms Indigenous poetry exists as a body of work to be wrestled with on its own terms. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's really central to understanding sort of the the, the necessity of, of a project like this, that, that these poets and these ideas are understood on their own terms. There's this no, there's this idea that Joy Harjo puts in the introduction about about sort of the value of the word and the value of poetry and all of these things, and that words are living beings and that uh, they should be understood as such, right? They're not sort of contained by sort of the vessel like this knowledge delivery vessel that is the book, right? They're not contained by print and paper and, you know, saddle stitching or glued, you know, uh, spines or all those things. I mean, they are living things. Uh, not only are they living things, but they have, you know, and as your poetry, as, you know, uh, we'll discuss later, they have a shape to them, right? They have a shape and they have a meaning and they have sort of uh, 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 a trajectory, right, that allows them to sort of 
move and cycle through different sort of moments of, of human existence. And that's another thing that really struck me about this as I was reading the collection and, pre- and preparing for this for our talk is the the shape of the the shape of the work itself, not just the book shape, but the but the way that the that the poetry and the ideas they flow, not just circularly, but sort of intentionally and geographically around, right? And and, and Leanne Leanne noted this, you know, in uh, in circling around the country, uh, all the way and finally ending at the American Southeast, right? Or the, what is the Southeast of the United States? And that sort of that sort of layer of complexity that it adds, right? That sort of cyclical nature of all of these things, and that and that it's associated with the land uh, is uh, helps sort of bring a lot of the ideas, you know, right to right to the fore and make them feel even more vibrant um, than they might uh, already. And those are the those are the things that that just you know really jumped out to me. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Gordon, in in your own work is sort of the centrality uh, of land in, in your poems. And I wonder if you might uh, favor us with a reading uh, from the collection, and then sort of I'd like for us to discuss it uh, a little bit there. So I'm going to read the poem: "November becomes the sky with suppers for the dead." I'm standing outside in Minnesota. Ghost wind recalling names in winter mist. The road smells of dogs two days dead. White photographers talk in the house of mainstream media. I can't articulate the agony of Eagle Singer's children to them. We celebrate the old man while another generation shoots crushed and heated prescriptions, sells baskets, machinery, the fixtures yet to be installed in the house, yet to be heated by the tribal government. For another night, stolen by the stupors and the wondrous pleasure of forget-everything medicines. Back inside, Uncle Two Dogs rolls me a smoke out of organic or American spirit. I look to the last cup of coffee. The way home fills with snow our tracks, human and machine. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about this is because, you know, as, as it relates to this question of place and land, where were you when you, when you wrote this? I believe I was in Michigan, central Michigan, um, where I've, I've resided for the past, I don't know, 20, 25 years. Yeah. And, um, I'm always sort of called back through poetry to um, White Earth, a little village called Pine Point, White Earth, uh, where my, my family's from. And uh, at the same time, you know, it harkens back to just memories I've had of places within that are, you know, referenced within the poem. Um, sometimes, you know, the political activist work that I did at White Earth um, when I was a grad student at the University of North Dakota, that's stuff about the white photographers. Um, and then also just, uh, thinking back on relatives in Turtle Mountain as well as wider. So there's an extension of place, the interior spaces of place in the poem. I think that, um, poetry allows me to, to work through, um, in terms of recasting memory. And, and I think that that shows this sort of, uh, even when we're outside of our home communities, this, what I call remote connection, um, better than a satellite. Connection almost, uh, but 
a connection that we carry forward and sort of attunes us to who we are in some way? Yeah, and that connection, I mean, is to the land itself. And early on in the collection and the introduction, there's this there's this notion that's presented to readers that, uh, to, I mean, it is literally about being the land, that the land is what you carry with you, right? That's what holds your memories, holds holds a sense of self and place and, and community and all of those things, right? And, you know, when I read this the first time and hearing you read it, read it again now, I mean, uh, that sense of connection comes through in, in, in a meaningful way, uh, that it's stored there. Um, and that it's something that, uh, it cannot, cannot be erased or, 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 or displaced in spite of very real displacements that are ongoing. Um, ultimately is there at, at a root, at a core in some meaningful sense. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And I, and I think what I, what I emphasize when we, when we, Think about this uh, collection in terms of what it might mean to the non-native, non-writer audiences who would encounter it, um, is that they are always moving through spaces that are native spaces. And those native spaces often carry our expressions in the words of the landscape, um, in the very, uh, features of the landscape, if that's how you want to put it, um, the flora, the fauna, all of that is part of a native presence that's ongoing part of a native existence and that continues and all, but also carries this sort of residual memory, I would say that continues to crop up in the present. Um, so I, I think that's joy, you know, joy hits that hits on that right at the beginning of the, of the intro and the anthology, the, the importance of land and place. Yeah. And it, it's as though the, the land is a form of language itself. I mean, language is as a store of memory, language as a store of identity and cultures and peoples and, and, you know, so the, the multiplicities of existence, right? I mean, land and what I'm hearing from you seems to sort of function in a very similar way that you can, you cannot be entirely divorced from it because it contains something, right? That, that you must, that you draw from, right? Are there other poems in the collection then that sort of speak to you in this way? Yeah, poems and people, I guess, um, is, is what I was thinking. Um, Fortunate as a young poet to meet poets who are, who are older than me um, and sort of inspired me, encouraged me to write. Lance Hansen was one of them. Another was uh, a man, uh, Carol, all of us, I think, uh, a man named Carol Annette Leandos knew pretty well. And they're really, they're really great people, fun to hang around with, but um, also this inspired me as poets too, like all of my fellow uh, writers here, Leanne and Cam and, and Meg, also inspire me every day as well. So, um, But Lance... Um, has kind of a poetic sensibility that I like. He, he writes these short, sort of crystal clear poems, crystalline. I don't want to say clear. But I mean, no poems are really that clear. You have to dig into them and work through them. But uh, he has this way of really presenting images in, in, a, in a sort of understated way that I, I really engage with. So I'm going to read one of his poems. He was born in 1944. He's a, he, he's made this decision, I think, to be a double expatriate um, to, to, to live in Europe. Um, partly because he can travel around reading poems in Europe and people love that. Um, but also partly because uh, I think he, he's, he takes issue with some of the things going on in the United States always. Um, as, in my sense of it anyway, can't speak for him, but I wanted to read from him. Uh, you know, he, he served in the U.S. Marine Corps in Vietnam. You can read in his bio and he's a member of a Cheyenne dog soldier society. So he's got these sort of traditional roots, but also, you know, has, has been involved in things that, um, in the U.S. that are, you know, also part of his experience. This poem is called Sitting Alone in Tulsa at 3 a.m. Round dance of the day has gone. A siren scream splashes the blinds like ice. A fly sits frozen on a yellow plastic cup. 
the end tables huddled in pairs, sailed at Rensburg's on ladies' shoes, felt squares and soft knits at the mill outlet. Whatever, whatever I have done today has done without me. The edges of the city and the pale moon reflect in the same river. How easily we forget. And so one of the things that I like about Lance's poems is that, uh, you know, they had this, this sort of, sort of imagery that I associated with what I was interested in doing. Um, you know, short lyrics in the beginning when I first started writing poems that, uh, allowed me to look into myself, look into images, not have to say too much, you know, just let the poem speak for itself. Um, and then let people draw from that as they would, but at the same time expressing some, um, sense, I don't know, of longing, uh, of trying to find a connection to the experience. Um, and uh, carrying on this notion that uh, in the lyric moment, we haven't forgotten, even though the poem says at the end how easily we forget. Uh, lyric is, is kind of a, a counterintuitive to that that position at the end of the poem. So uh, this is one of the things that drew me his work, and I, I just love the idea, too, that he was uh, also inspired by some Spanish poets that I started reading after he mentioned them, Antonio Machado and Federico Garcia Lorca, and he also loved Pablo Neruda, um, uh, you know, all, all male writers, but um, people that, you know, I learned from in uh, in reading, and Lance sort of uh, pointed me in that direction at one, at one point in my life. And I'm, so I'm grateful for that. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things I wanted to sort of pull from, from that, because I think you're saying – I think you're saying multiple things that are really important. The first is, you know, to come back to the end of the poem, that last line, how easily forget and it being ironic in its way. Right. I mean, he's clearly not forgotten, um, but that, that adds a layer to, uh, so, you know, you describing him as a double expat, you know, he's still, he's still a part of that land that land is not, you know, he's not forgotten that he's still, that is still something he carries with him in spite of, um, where he literally physically is, right? It seems that land, like language in that way, is not limited, uh, to physical space, right? It, it is, it is something other. It is some, it is something, something to carry with you like a memory that can be explored and mapped and better understood and, and excavated and, you know, all of these different things. Um, which I think, you know, again, is, is so central to sort of thinking through sort of the, the shape, the shape of this collection. And the other thing, that you touch on that I think is also really crucial to understand is, is his influence by Spanish poets and someone like Lorca, that his existence, that his identity, that his, um, the, his artistic influences, they're not limited, right? He's not, he's not trapped by anything that's been preconstructed by, particularly by a white culture, right? Like it's not, he's not, he's not held by a John Ford imagination of, of native existence. Um, and I, I think that is that's so important to understand, especially, you know, in thinking through a sort of like, you know, the lyrical nature of the poem and, and uh, his, his sense of identity as he grows while still remaining firmly grounded in the land and who he, and who he is, right? There's no separation, and those things. Yes. And, and, and I think as well, every tribe has a sort of, this may not be the right way of characterizing it, but a lyric tradition or a song tradition or song traditions, um, that we all sort of know about and maybe influences us indirectly somewhat in some way. 
And going back to that sense that he has other influences too, I remember um, I was in a graduate's class one time and we were reading Faulkner. It was all Faulkner stuff. And my professor uh, was reading something of Faulkner about how um, Ike McCaslin didn't want to look at something, right? And he said, it reminds me of something. I can't remember what it was. And I said, well, it's, it's a Lorca poem you're thinking of when he didn't want to, he did not want to look at the, the sand and this blood in the sand in the, in the bullfighting arena. And so he was just shocked that anybody that I would have read that, um, you know, or that, you know, that, that I could somehow make that connection. And so I think what this book also allows us to see and understand is that we're, we're pretty, we're pretty schooled and crafty, I guess you could say, uh, in our own ways in the way that we approach poetry. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a very sophisticated approach. A lot of, the, a lot of native writers have that sometimes, you know, I think, um, we gotta, we gotta look at that and remember that as well. So, um, and then I remember right after class, this, this woman came up to me and she said, wow, I didn't know you were so worldly, you know, that you, you've been out in the world so much. <laughs> like, wow, really? Okay. Uh, so it was, it was an interesting moment for me, but it speaks to Lance's, you know, influences. I think we all read outside of uh, our own friends and, you know, poets uh, that we're familiar with. But yes. at the same time, as Joy said, we all kind of know each other too and um, are aware of each other's work and are influenced by each other. Yeah. And I have, you know, I had a similar experience with uh, one of my early professors and, and mentors and, and still a very dear friend who's, who's uh, Ojibwe and, uh, you know, but he's a Victorianist and um, in, in his classes, which were, you know, Quite frank, I went to a small liberal arts college where, you know, almost exclusively white kids when he explains to them, like, I'm from, you know, Fond du Lac. And I, you know, it, it, <laughs> they're like, well, but you're Victorian. It's like, I know, I understand. It's okay for me to study you, <laughs> right? Like, we're all human beings. We all have access to ideas and language. Uh, we need not be sort of objectified in, in, in this way. And um, I think understanding that, about sort of the collection and, and the poets uh, here is is just being real honest, you know, really sort of important for folks to understand and sort of the ways in which sort of language affects us all in those um, in, in those different ways, right? And we, I mean, we all can get library cards. We can all learn. We can all do new things, right? We're not we're not bound um, or constrained um, like cicadas, right? Uh, as as Leanne might put it. Um, so. One of the one of the things too that that sort of builds on that is this notion of language and translation and 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 you point out you know uh, very importantly Gordon that uh, you know the land in which we all inhabit that makes up what we call the United States is filled with linguistic and regional and and natural markers that that point to indigeneity right that point to uh, different native nations and. And one of the things that the collection does really nicely is uh, not not only in its breadth and its scope, it, you know, historically, but it, it is very uh, it is careful to point is careful to draw attention to uh, poetry written in indigenous languages and also in, in translation. Uh, Kim, you have a poem in here that is translated, and Margaret, you do a significant amount of translation work for for this collection. One of the things I think is really important for folks listening to this to to understand is that translation is not just a one to one with words, and uh, where one word just automatically 
is converted into another, right? Kim, you'd mentioned something uh, about this earlier uh, that it's a, it's a conversation. It's, it's collaborative. So I would really love to, to hear uh, the poem that you have that is uh, in two languages. Um, I would love for listeners at home to hear that, but I'd also really like for you and Margaret to sort of talk about the translation process and what that means and how you sort of come to an understanding with one another and making sure that the meaning comes across in the, in the, in the fullest and, and richest way. Sure. So, you know, thinking about this um, poem in particular, um, I think one of the things I want to say about translation is that I believe we're all in the process of translation of culture in when we write as well, because we have a kind of ideology of language that we bring to our writing that we have this sort of embedded sensibility and maybe we, the lens through which we view the world uh, might be from stories that are not mainstream stories. And so that's sort of part of what stands behind this poem. Um, Margaret and I, Meg and I, have done different kinds of work together. We've also done collaborative poems that we literally write together, passing back and forth pieces of it. And, and we tinker with one another's language and we have conversations in between that. This one... Um, you know, we did have some conversation around, uh, but we we both have a sense of this story, which is about the earth diver. Um, and so I guess that's what I'll say about this, except to also mention an anthology that Joy Harjo also edited with Gloria Bird, which is called Reinventing the Enemy's Language. So writing in English is always writing still from a tribal context, right? And so English itself has been turned to another use, right? Mm -hmm. And so then we have, you know, several layers of what we might call translation. Dreams of water bodies. Nebi wiawanan boadanan. Wajushk, small whiskered swimmer, you a fluid arrow crossing waterways with the simple determination of one who has dived purple deep into mythic quests. Wajashk agashi meishinawet bagizot biwak dakamadagayin mashkwendaman ogi washkayamnumban demi minandek gagwedwayumban belittled or despised as water rat on land, hero of our Anishinaabe people in animal tales, creation stories whose tellers open slowly, magically, like within a dream, your tiny clenched fists, so all water tribes might believe. Nini Chihuahua Baganuji Aki, O Gichida Anishinabe, Awe Sinajamoano, Adazokanak, Dash the Bajamojik, Anasakananawa, Nangach, Injimamanjing, Gidobik one owning jeans, Midash, Gakana, Nibi Shinabek, Debwe and Demot. See the small grains of sand, ah. Only those poor few, but they become our turtle island, this good and well-dreamed land where we stand in this moment on the edge of so many 
bodies of water and watched Wajush, our brother, slip through pools and streams and lakes, this marshland earth hallowed by the memory, the telling, the hope, the dive of sleek whiskered swimmers who mark a dark path. Agamigong, Wajoshk, Wabmong, Niknaning, Shiba Sege, Zaga Iganan, Gae Zibinson, Mashki Kshawendong, Nikwendong, Wawindong, Ejibogasendamot, Ejigogi what, Egashi, Mimishinoe what, Egizojik, Dibiki, Niknong. And sometimes in our water dreams, we pitiful land dwellers in longing recall and singing make spirits ready to follow bakopi go down into the water nan go no enjinebi wajaganan kidamabos jik akin in dying bakadendo dan dash nagamoyen jibenakoyen so the other thing I just wanted to say about this poem is it's also visual, and it's concrete poetry in the sense that visually it looks like a water body diving. And the um, original has, uh, I do pictorial poems, and it has an image, which is also sort of surreal of water bodies. Yeah. And when you're, we're thinking sort of about just, not just the image, sort of the mental images of the game, but the, the visual image of, of the poem. I guess one of the questions I had, I wanted to ask about that or what wanted us to be able to sort of think through together is what sort of informs that choice? I mean, so much of what we talked about earlier, we talked about land and shapes and, and sort of the elements, right? Like of the, that make up the land. So what sort of, leads us to this the shape i mean is there is it more literal or are you addressing something uh visually right is there are there visual cues here are there visual metaphors here so i i think that you know part of it is that poetry extends off the page anyway right both in sound but also it, it it's sort of multi-dimensional Mm-hmm. And so this is maybe just an invitation to experience it in that way. So in thinking about this in multiple dimensions, is there a way to sort of think through sort of the multidimensionality of the poem as being something other than just the words, right? So one of the things we talked about early on is that the words sort of mean something, that the words are alive, that they are with us, right? Do you think that, or do you think that as a poet or as a reader or an interpreter of, of poetry, do you think that by giving this, the words, the sort of sense of multidimensionality, it allows them to live in a new way, right? And to be alive in some meaningful way. Yes, because they are um, incantatory, right? As language is, and they create a soundscape. Mm-hmm. And intuitively, our bodies respond to sound, right? Our spirits respond to sound. So I, when you asked me before, what do I want you to do? I want you to get in the water. Yeah. I want you to go down in the water. 
<laughs> yeah, to feel it, right? To, right. to experience yeah. it, to be to be immersed in the language, right? To be immersed in the idea, in the in sort of the the depth, right? And I'm not trying to be cheeky with the language, but really the, the depth of what's happening here, right? To dive down with the mm-hmm. to dive down uh, with with the creature. So, yeah, I would add if I can, that in the third stanza, I think one thing about translation is you know where a person's going and you need to be accurate to that process and that place. But there's significant difference when you're hearing it in an Ishnabemwin. So Wajashk is our brother and we're telling this story about Wajashk. And when you see the way that Kim has arranged the words on the page in the English the attempt to give an audio echo of that experience where the ends of the lines, the starts of the lines and the alliteration through them should kind of give that sort of whisk, that way that that Wajashk might be doing this. So you hear things that you can do in Anishinaabe when that you can't necessarily do in English. So I sometimes feel as translator, I need to pick up where she's going and echo that her lines has slipped through pools and streams and lakes. The Anishinaabe said, mm-hmm. And when you have the memory, the telling, the hope, the dive, those are nouns in English. In Anishinaabe, when they're conjugated verbs saying, he does this, the way they all do things. Mikwendong, wawindong, ejibogosendamowat. What? So it brings him into the context of all the other animals that are in the water, all the other water beings, and connects our thoughts to sort of being in the water in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of what we try to do with translation is get it right, but also pick up and, and bridge the gaps as well. Yeah, well, I, and I, I'm glad that you chimed in with that because that was one of the things I wanted to ask about the ways in which sort of the translation helps give it, give us the shape that, that Kim's talking about, right? That, that, that fleshes those things out. When you're working through this, uh, and you're thinking about those sort of particularities of, of language and sort of, and the, and the conjugations and that sort of thing. So, so when you two are working together, I mean, how do you sort of, how do you sort of conversate about that to make sure that you're understanding one another and sort of enhancing the, the meaning and enhancing the beauty of the poem in that way? I mean, what are those conversations, what might those conversations sound like? So we've done different sorts of things for different poems, right? Yeah. Um, and Sometimes, you know, maybe we'll come with questions. Sometimes we'll just talk about a word, like what does it mean in English? What is it? How, why is it different in the Nishinaabe Moen? Or sometimes, like there's another poem where I, it's, it's about death. And, and we had like, I think we had a, like a really long conversation about that. Um, and so it's, it's really specific to the piece, I think, um, how the, exchange goes yeah i would agree it has to be very specific to what the goals are what is the time that you want to be in what is the impact of the poem that the poet intended knowing that that might not be exactly what the reader takes from it but then how do you be true to what you're giving and and know you're leaving space for people to catch that in a way i guess 
and I think that that is, you know, something that is incredibly important for, for folks to understand as they're thinking about translation is sort of the intentionality that doesn't just go into poetry, but that goes into the translation, right? That you must be intentional, that you must think these things through, that you must be sort of cognizant, not just of the words that you're choosing, but of the, of the person whom you're translating and the space that they come from and the space that they inhabited and, and how to sort of best reflect that by way of, you know, a, a new or a different language, right. Or a revised, you know, sort of approach to it. So that, I think that's a, that's really sort of important for, for folks to hear that, to understand that those, those differences come through in that way. So one of the other things I wanted to ask about as it relates to, as it relates to this particular poem, you know, I, I keep coming back to this because it's, it seems so relevant to the collection of this, the notion of, of land and, 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 and that sort of things. But in the third stanza, you open with see the small grains of sand, Ah, only those poor few. Um, I realize that I'm not reading it as, as elegant, as eloquently, as elegantly as you did, but I wonder if you might sort of be willing to unpack that for a reader of this poem or for a listener of this poem. Well, in that moment, it's obviously alluding to the Earth Diver story about how the different creatures dove into the water in an attempt to, you know, get sand or earth from which we could build a new world. But I, I, I wanted it to have this um, connection. It's not a story from the past. Because our creation is ongoing, right? right? And so I wanted it to have that sort of way of passing into, like, we experience as we participate in this, um, both in story and in reality, because we create and recreate our worlds all the time. And so I wanted that sense of participation. And so part of it, I made it you know, it's a body thing. It's in your hand, right? You, it's right there. You're, you're the, the small, the clenched fist. I wanted it to become um, physically experienceable. That's where, you know, for people to be able to feel that, and and then to, you know, like maybe that would make it again. I keep saying multidimensional, but it would be something beyond language on a page, mm-hmm. and it would connect to traditional story to contemporary reality to the future because that sort of through line is part of what the poem is both demonstrating physically but also asking us to think about um spiritually yeah so so then it's uh that sort of multi-dimensionality it's it's not just that thing it's about everything it's about the ongoing sort of re reconstitution of who we might be Right. That's really beautiful. That, that's that's. I, I really I really sort of appreciate that sort of cyclicalness of it, right? As it sort of comes and goes, and sort of we dig back down. And this is something that Gordon touched uh, touched on earlier. But sort of that, that digging back down inside and sort of drawing it back forth, and then reconstituting the new thing, right? And even if the new thing is the old thing, it's still the new thing as it's as it's recurred. That's that's lovely, Margaret. So you. Uh, you translated a number of poems uh, in this in this collection, so I would like for you to to select something else that you would like to read. But before we do that, uh, I just kind of want to hear what your uh, what your experience was with with translating uh, with translating other works besides the, besides the collaborations you have with what you have with Kim. So can you talk a little bit about those and sort of what your approach to those were? I think the short answer to that would be that in the early selections where we had people writing poetry using their first language, 
mm-hmm. and also proving they were quite skilled sometimes at using English to have the full translation between those spaces was important. So the Jane Schoolcraft example is one where she was writing both in Anishinaabemwin and in English. If you just take her English translation, you find that the meaning in some cases with her poems is close but very different. And it's nice to be able to see that difference. There are also many instances for many, many nations where early ethnographers recorded someone and then may have worked with a translator to get at the value or the meaning of the song or the piece and not really re- reveal what it actually means. So there are some instances where early ethnographers would record an elder and then say, this is the song and talk more about how it was used, but not actually reveal what a translator standing right there who was fluent in the language might tell you about the words being said. So I tried to use a, you know, a way of translation to get at meanings that are sometimes lost, mm-hmm. differences. And I think for us um, to know that language is always in a state of being recovered, being used, being put forth as a paradigm for how we think about things is important. Um, the poem I would choose to read is one that a good friend of mine, Jim Northrup, Chibanesiba, uh, wrote. And he wrote quite a bit, uh, and he wrote mostly in English, but he spoke so strongly about the need to learn the language and use the language, I would count him as one of the people that really made it clear to me that you've got to really dig in and get this right, because I knew him at a point in my life when I could have decided to just kind of walk away and know poetry in one way, but I decided, no, I would like to be able to fully just write in that language and and immerse myself in that. And be able to represent my ancestors in a way that I don't think I could fully do in English if I had the chance, right? So I was of a generation where I I could try to do this. So I kind of always hear his voice when I read things. Um, And I think that he was writing at a time when there were certain stereotypes about Native people that it was fun to hold up and laugh at a little bit and then really inspire people to think hard about who we really are and how we keep our identity going. So I'll, I'll read one of his poems called Rezkar. I'll read it first in English, but because you asked me, I can read it for you in Ojibwe too. I, I can do that second. I, so I, would, I would love that. I'll give you both versions. <laughs> so Rezkar, it's 17 years old. It's been used a lot more than most. It's louder than a 747. It's multicolored, and none of the tires are brothers. I'm the seventh or eighth owner. I know I'll be the last. What's wrong with it? Well, the other day, the steering wheel fell off. The radio doesn't work, but the heater does. The seats have seen more asses than a proctologist. I turn the key. It starts. I push the brake. It stops. What else is a car supposed to do? Ish gonagani. Dabon. Ashi nijwa so, bibunagase. Kitchi abrze, no chigodash niwa. 
on bige wayway, no chigodash ween bemisemagok. Nijwaswa, nimdana, ash nijwaswe. Nin no janagazi, anunch janagazi. Gawin dash to tibisajek, o sayan siwak. O bebekan siwak. Nin dash, nijwaso, magija ishwaso de benamok. Ngikenda ninsa ishwash gesh gwed benamok. An ejwe but nishna. Ni dash wasnago. Kipongisin adikwegan. Gawin anokimagasanon. Bizindamomakak. E dash anokimagat awasuin. O dabani a pubwin o giwabandanan. Ni boa o jitan. Dash win o jidi. Mashkawanini. Gawabandan. Ingwek webanan. Abikaigan. Ejimajibizot. Ninga webeshkige, ejinugabizot, aninga egejitchiget odaban. Meet you. And so it, actually for me, even being able to do that, um, I have elders that told me to get to a point where I could do that with my language. And I think that Jim would still be hearing this. I think that Jim would be glad to know that his words he wrote in English at a time where he hadn't been allowed to carry his language forward, that we picked up the ball in the next generation, we took it forward. Now the fight is to like keep thinking in our language first. So my poems are always written in Anishinaabe and went first and English second. Jim wrote this poem first in English because he had to, and it moved into Anishinaabe because it could. So I hope that we can, you know, keep doing that and that translation is something that you know, gives us a pathway to carry our identity forward in ways that maybe people before us weren't able to do. At least I tell my students these things and my daughters these things when I insist that they keep learning the language. Yeah. And first of all, I mean, thank you for the readings. Those were both really beautifully done. So thank you for them. And you sort of preempted one of the things I wanted to ask you about, but sort of the critical nature of of presenting these in your own national language, right? And to preserve an identity to preserve a people to preserve a sense of, of self. Uh, I don't think allow is the right word, but to, uh, to allow an access to a people that have been denied, right? Uh, a voice or a hearing uh, to, to be themselves. Right. I mean, and I think where that sort of notion comes, comes through most strongly for me is when you talk about how, when Jim Northrup wrote Res Car, he couldn't write it uh, in his in his own language, and that now that that has happened or can be heard in that way is is meaningful in some way, right? It, it demonstrates a transition. It demonstrates something, right? And perhaps it's in some way it's it's not unlike those little grains of sand that um, that that Kim writes about. Yeah, and I think we have to be careful to not take things for granted. There's a lot that needs to be fixed. There's a lot we need to do to make space mm-hmm. for all Anishinaabe to feel they can have their poem expressed in the language. I would want anyone who wants to write it in the language or have their poem translated to feel like there are enough people around them who can do that if they have not had the chance in their life to access the language that way because so many people just did not have a chance and have never had the time to do this. So I think it's important, and 
And I would say, you know, you're making this podcast at a moment in time, and this book has come out in a moment in time where there are many things to celebrate. And it's always such a fine line, you know, and I think of those way before us who negotiated becoming citizens and participating in America in all the various complicated, difficult ways that we do that. Many of us here, I mean, all of us are academics here and and the way that you be in these worlds that sometimes still shut you down is interesting. I mean, just recently I had a poem that I was not aware anyone would find or use, and the New York Times published it, and Naomi Shiabnai had chosen it, which is a huge honor and amazing. And just to think that Naomi would pick up something of mine and read it was incredible, but it was published only in English. And it had been written in Anishinaabe one, and it sounds so much more beautiful in Anishinaabe one. I was kind of embarrassed that the English was published that way because it felt like somehow now the poem got out in the world a little bit naked, a little bit half. I had made a sculpture and someone cut the head off, you know. So I think we have to really guard against the ways that the world around us will still try to silence us. Yeah. And in trying to honor us, erase part of who we are. Yeah. And to recognize that there's a violence being done in that way. No, I was just going to say that it's a very tricky thing because as all of, when I work with students who want to write in their language and they say, you know, how should I go forward and do this? Or how do I even just be a a native person and a poet writing in English today? There's a lot that people feel they have to apologize for or they have to write a certain way or it's only okay to write about certain things. And I think that's what we have to, you know, this volume is so amazing and so important because what it says is there's just so many ways to write and so many ways to be indigenous. So I, I, I love it for that reason because it breaks down those barriers. I can show it to young writers and say, look at all the ways that you can be not just write in a way that you think an editor or a teacher might approve. Yeah. And not so, yeah. And not even approve, but prescribe in certain ways, whether intentionally or not, but prescribing an identity, ascribing uh, a language or a culture, any of those things. I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a hard thing for, for a lot of people to understand is that that kind of violence is still present and, and that, and that, and that it does, real harm. It, it hurts people in, in ways that aren't always visible or easy to understand or to to acknowledge. So one of the things I really appreciate about what you're saying, too, is it sort of moves us ahead, is that the, the anthology itself is an opportunity for uplift and, and to recognize the value of a voice and a language and a culture and the multiplicity of identities that come within it. Um, I think that that's, that's one of the, for me, that's one of the most crucial, crucial takeaways, um, from, from having experienced this over the past couple of weeks. So, uh, and I'm glad that you're, you're sort of putting it in that, in that frame for us and leads me to my next, uh, my next question about this. And, and this is for you, uh, Leanne is because you wrote a really lovely outro to this collection. I would love to re- to hear you, uh, read from this as well, but you know, where do we, where do we go from here, right? If this is, if the collection and, and uh, is this moment of uplift and resistance and change and, and an opportunity for, for new voices to be heard, where, where do readers go from here? And then, uh, and how would you sort of 
frame, how much you frame that for them? Oh, thanks for the question, uh, Zach. I don't think about where we go from here. I think about who um, are the are the young poets who are going to carry on these traditions, and and so I never asked that question before or when I started writing. I just think the the action. You know, most native languages are action languages. So. And whether, you know, we know it or not, I think we're driven by action to create poetry and uh, fiction, creative nonfiction. There's an action involved there. So I really don't start with that question. I, I just keep writing. And that's, that's the message of the anthology, I think, is that we began and we continue and that's the circular nation uh, a circular notion of uh, this collection and others will come and and see a different way to enter and a different way to publish um, and that's that's the exciting nature of where we are as people uh, as indigenous people of North America, as indigenous people on a global stage. And, um, and that's, I think that's the excitement. This is just a slice of what, what is out there. This is representative of what, what we had and where we wanted to go. But it's as Kim, uh, was saying, it's just the beginning. You know, it's another, it's another beginning because there have been other anthologies. And I wanted to say something about, uh, the nature of writing. When I started writing poetry and even I was, um, um, writing about growing up in Oklahoma City during a really hard time, uh, I'm a, a child of the sixties. My work was excluded because I wasn't writing about medicine and I was excluded by other native writers. Well, there's nothing, you know, you're not writing about medicine or the, the spirit. And I thought, well, no, I'm writing about what's happening in Oklahoma City and that kind of exclusion, you know, where Things happen, and I think all of us are part of that experience. You know, my brother was beaten senseless so many times for protesting, um, and it was a brutal time. And so for me, what I was trying to express early on was that experience, and it was roundly dismissed. And that hasn't uh, thank goodness that hasn't lasted and maybe I changed my writing a bit, um, cause it was pretty harsh. But, um, you know, we've, we've moved on in this way that keeps us, uh, engaged. I think we're people of action and, uh, action and reflection, action and reflection. And so, um, that's the kind of heart that we had to bring to this anthology was one one of those actions and then reflection. And and I think, you know, I'm prejudiced, but I think we've accomplished that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think so too. And I really appreciate sort of the clarification and, and the better understanding of about action, right? I think that helps sort of uh, more fully form this the cyclical nature of both the the, the structure of the the structure of the collection and uh, the ways in which we've been talking about land and identity and all of these things. Uh, this constant moving forward, and it reminded me, and I was flipping to it of one of the things that you put in the in the outro, uh, the very last line of it is you said you write we are not finished yet that there is no terminus to this that it just moves on and on and on it's a continual cycle of growth and and development and change and there's not a moment of stasis here right we're not trapped in in these things and i think that that's that's really sort of crucial right when thinking through like the, the stakes of these things so there are a couple more poems i would love to hear i would love to hear one from from you and then i would love to hear um I would love to hear one, uh, another from Kim. I know Kim had another selection she wanted to, to bring into our conversation. If I can ask you or if I can, if you would indulge us and uh, select something from the collection that you would like to read, would that be okay with you? Sure. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about collaboration, um, I wrote a series of Noble Savage poems mm-hmm. Um one of them, Jonathan Thunder, also Ojibwe, um, he, he made a video poem out of that. And it's, it's the kind of color, landscape, and it's very funny. And so I wanted these to be, um, both, well, they're funny. They're meant to be funny. So this is Noble Savage Sees a Therapist. Noble Savage. She's too intense for me, and I feel nothing, no emotion. In fact, I'm off all females, even lost my lust for attacking white chicks. Pause. Therapist. He's writing furiously on a yellow pad that says nothing. Noble savage. People expect me to be strong, wise, stoic, without guilt. A man capable of a few symbolic acts. Ugh, is that what I'm supposed to say? Therapist. He continues writing furiously. Noble savage. I don't feel like maiming, scalping, burning wagon trains. I'm developing hemorrhoids from riding bareback. It's an impossible role. The truth is, I'm conflicted. I don't know who I am. What should I do, Doc? Therapist. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Let's take this up during our next visit. And then um, I have a whole bunch of these, and I think they're funny, and they make me laugh. And so... <laughs> One of the things... Hey, this is... First of all, I, this is a funny poem, right? Like, I just can't, like, burst out and laugh, or otherwise it interrupts, like, you're reading... One of the things that I, I think is one of the things that is funniest to me about this, and, and maybe it's just because I like toilet humor, but the hemorrhoids thing, <laughs> like when I was reading this earlier this week, I was like, oh, that's very funny. And you know what? You would get hemorrhoids riding bareback. That would destroy your body. And I think that that's, I mean, earlier, you know, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, when Margaret was speaking, sort of the value of, you know, of uplift and and that sort of thing. And I think that comedy and all of those things are really sort of important to have in here that that these things they can be funny that we have live that they can be as you say they can be about oklahoma city they can just be 
or, or the things that you're conflicted about as, as the noble savage is, is in here. And the other thing that I like about this poem too is that in its humor, it's still, it still cuts, right? Like it's still addressing like the very obvious problems. Stereotypes. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and the thing, and, and it does so in a way that cuts right at the things that we all immediately recognize as stereotypes. Like if you don't recognize these as stereotypes, then where, where are you? Who are you? Where have you been? Where have you been? Yeah. You know, that's the thing about, um, about this series, but also, um, and cause we've been talking really because we're, we're all academics. We cannot help ourselves from, from pointing out, um, different kinds of positions that natives take in writing. But the truth is we're very funny people. We are, we make each other laugh. We get together and mostly, I mean, I've gotten together with all these guys before both in Minnesota around the country. And mostly what we do is laugh. And um, it's, it's, it's the thing I believe that has kept us from, from um, running amok as people because we laugh. And we learn that from our ancestors. Just when my grandparents are always kind of laughing and uh, crying. So it's a balance of both things. Yeah. I think that that's so important to hear too, that especially, you know, I think you're right to point out like, because the, you know, the five of us, we're all academics here. It's very easy to fall into an understanding like, well, we must dissect this. We must strip this of all pleasure. This, this must only be an object of our scrutiny. And I don't think that that's fair or true or right. I think it's okay to experience poetry and words and plays and all these things for what they are, which is humorous and fun and about ourselves and humanity and the things that we, you know, that bring us some sort of pleasure in some way, right? Uh, even if that pleasure is, is an awkward confrontation or better understanding of, you know, who we've been or who we might be. And so, yeah, I I think that's, that's so crucial to all of this because I think that that's a hard thing too, especially if you're a, if you're a younger student and you're coming into this or you're a a nascent reader of these things, I think it's very easy to fall into a trap, uh, a, a frankly sort of racist trap where the assumption is like, well, all of these things must be about beleaguerment or that they must be about, Um, sort of heartache and hardships, um, which is not to diminish those very real things, but my God, we're still human beings. We still live in a world. We still have, you know, passions and ideas and thoughts and, and that sort of thing. So, so I'm really glad that you, you're bringing that sort of to the, to the floor with this. Um, that's a, that makes perfect sense to sort of go out here. I mean, as you say, I mean, we are not finished yet. These are stories, right? So. But in speaking uh, and thinking through sort of those moments of, of pleasure and ideas and sort of the experience of reading and listening to poetry, Kim, I know that you had wanted to uh, share with something, uh, share something with us from Cassandra Lopez. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I guess I could link this to the conversation about that that Leanne said about you know being sort of left out because. She was writing about an urban experience at that time, right? And in this particular poem, um, Cassandra Lopez is is writing about the um, brutal death of her brother, right? But it's it's a it's a larger poem than that. At that, but she has a book of poem called Brother Bullets, and um, she's a Kuiya, Tongva, and Lucinio, and she's one of the younger-ish poets in the volume. 
Um, and the other thing about this, the title of the poem is A New Language. And I want to suggest that it's, it is about loss, but it's also about connection or transcending loss. And so it, it has that sort of, um, larger reality within the poem itself. And, um, I just think it's a beautiful poem. A New Language. My words are always collapsing upon themselves, too tight in my mouth. I want a new language, one with at least 50 words for grief and 50 words for love so I can offer them to the living who mourn the dead. I want a language that understands sister pain and heart hurt. So when I tell you, brother is my hook of heart, you will see the needle threading me to the others, numbered men, women, and children of our grit-spit city. I want a language to tell you about 2010's 37th homicide, the unsolved, a man that my city turned to number, sparking me back to longer days when ocean is the mouth of summer. Our shell fingers drive into sand, searching. We find tiny silver sand crabs. We scoop and scoop till we bore and go in search of tangy seedweed. We are salted sun, how we brown to earth, our warm flesh flowering. In this new language, our bones say sun and sea, reminding us of an old language our mouths have forgotten, but our marrow remembers. That was a really lovely reading, Kim. Thank you. I think this is a really nice poem to sort of bring us to the conclusion of our, of our conversation. And I think it's well chosen by you, not just because it's a beautiful poem, but because, I mean, it just, this is, this has sort of been sort of the arc of our, com- as I, as I am interpreting it, this sort of the arc of our conversation. This is a language that allows for 50 words for grief and another 50 words for love. And all of, and of the multiplicity of experiences that is not bound by anything other than, than ourselves, right? Or than, than the selves of the, of the poets and the authors included in, in the collection. One of the things I, um, that, that struck me as you were reading it was not just sort of that sort of, uh, notion of rebirth of a language, of an identity, of, of, of all of these things, but, uh, that it's a, that it's a remembrance, right? Uh, that is carried with you always, right? Which, which is precisely what we, we opened with when, when, with Gordon's poems. And it's just a really sort of poignant ending for me. So I don't have a lot more to add about that other than just like, I was very moved by what you had to say. And it made me feel really good about the progress, uh, of, of our, of our conversation. So when thinking through like why you selected this poem, was there a particular reason why you chose this one? Was it just something that moved you? Or was it just because it was pleasurable and it felt beautiful to you? Or was there something else that sort of attracted you to it all of the above all of the above good that's good i wanted to show you know a little bit of the breadth of the collection um so sandra cassandra lopez is from the southwest and west region and you know i was working with the northeast and midwest and it's just a 
there's there's such an experience of a variety in here and i i just think that that this is just an excellent poem just in any you know like in this collection or anywhere else it's a beautiful poem right I, I think that I think that's the key, right? That in any collection, this is a poem that belongs, it matters, it's beautiful. It tells us something that we all should hear and experience. And right. um, that was just, I think that was a perfect way to put it. One more thing I just wanted to say is that, you know, I have to use a visitor word in here, which is survivance. You know, this, mm-hmm. this collection is also, you know, both resisting, like resistance, but it's also about survivance and, and the fact that we are still here. We're still making beautiful literature, that that beautiful literature is connected to all of our traditions, but it's also, as Meg suggests, it's, it's a path to the future. Like it's the, it's the way we continue is yeah. through our, our voice, our songs, our poetry, all of our literatures. Yeah. And ceremonies. Yeah. I think, I think that, that sums it all up really nicely. Thank you. Uh, so thank you all for being here and for joining me on this episode and in the conversation. This is really, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to not just, not just to speak with you all, but to, to read and experience the, the, the this collection. Uh, I'm really grateful to all of you for the work that you put into it as translators, as poets, and as editors. That is not an easy task. I've tried to do those things. It's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And to, and to produce something that is meaningful and lasting and um, touches, you know, touches people. It's, um, that's, that in and of itself is an art. So, so thank you all for, for doing that and for, for being here and being a part of the conversation. Thank you, Zach, for yeah. bringing it together. Thank you all. Watch everybody. Good yeah. to see you. Yeah, great to see you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here at Prerequisites. This episode of the program is supported by the Russell B. Nye Fellowship for Interdisciplinary Curricular Enhancement in English from the Michigan State University Department of English. You can find out more about MSU English, including graduate and undergraduate programs at english.msu.edu. This episode of Prerequisites was written, produced, and engineered by Zach Cruzy. Until next time, this is Dr. Zach Cruzy. Good day. <laughs>